It's just a matter of schools recognizing like, this is what the world needs. How are we pivoting to ensure that our, our students are equipped in that way? We're in an industry where it's all about relationships and working with people. So how come we actually usually don't undergo training at how to do a better job with that? There seems to be a disconnect between civics and reality. And I, I wish we could do a bit more to bridge like, well, guys, we're talking about this stuff because we want to shape our world. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Michelle Blanchett. Michelle comes from the US and currently lives in Switzerland, and she's the founder of The Educators Lab. She's also the co-author of two books, The Startup Teacher Playbook, and most recently, Preventing Polarization, 50 Strategies for Teaching Kids About Empathy, Politics, and Civic Responsibility. She's worked with organizations like PBS Education, the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning, the Center for Curriculum Redesign, and Ashoka. Over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of guests on the Coconut Thinking Podcast that relate to regenerative design, that relate to some educational theories, authors, and really contributors to the world of allowing us to rethink what education could be. Michelle is in that category, and she's not. She represents the side that's also important, which is going and working with teachers in order to affect transformative change. It's really important for us to remember our roots are in education, although that does spill over beyond school into regenerative design. And Michelle represents that piece where she is able to serve as a bridge between the two with a special emphasis on supporting teachers in implementing the change that they feel is needed, the change that the students will benefit from. So this is the balance that we have. This is the oscillation that we need. And over the next couple of podcasts, we'll talk with teachers who are working on the ground level and really making a difference in educators and learners' lives. Please check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You can find articles, blogs, resources, and so forth. And um, please leave us a comment as well. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Michelle. Hi, Michelle. It's really lovely to have you on the show. You and I have uh, been talking uh, quite a bit over the last year, and we've been part of workshops together. And uh, I'm going to put a little disclosure here and say that you and I have been collaborating on Nature on the School Board and uh, a couple other things here. But in this conversation, really interested in some of the work that you have and the two books that you've released and some of really your experiences and knowledge and, and what you see in terms of the landscape for teachers. But we'll start with the first question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Um, yeah, so thanks for having me on. Uh, my name's Michelle. I am a former teacher. I've taught in the U.S. and in Switzerland. And I would say my journey as an educator has evolved with kind of the changing demands of the world. So uh, when I was in the U.S., after only two years of teaching, I was getting frustrated because I didn't felt didn't feel like education was really giving my students what they would need to be successful in life. And it kind of sparked this journey for me on, um, you know, exploring what what does education need to look like so that kids are better prepared for the future. And when I say that, I I think about, okay, when kids graduate, you know, are they going to have a decent quality of life? Are they going to be good people? Can they engage in meaningful work? Um, what does the world look like that we're setting them up for? You know, does that, you know, is there peace? Um, so these types of things. So in any case, as I explored those questions, I went on to do a master's in Spain. Uh, and there I learned a lot about social entrepreneurship, uh, which I loved. 
So if people aren't familiar with that space, it's really more about people, often not from business backgrounds, uh, figuring out ways to solve problems through business principles. Um, I think it's a great kind of sector. Uh, and it's something where I saw a lot of value um, for the education space. So then, you know, I kind of adapted and I said, how can we bring some of these uh, skills and workshops and learning opportunities to educators? Because educators are usually trying to solve problems. And this industry, you know, this space is giving a platform basically for people to come together and figure out things that they could try uh, to, to, to solve those challenges. So in any case, that's kind of led me to where I'm at now. Uh, I am the co-founder of something called the Educators Lab, and we work basically as change consultants uh, in the education space. Uh, that's doing two things. Number one, we, we do take a lot that we've learned from the social startup world, and we adapt it and bring it into the education space. So for example, professional learning is more about getting uh, teachers together and collaborating and asking them what they would like to work on and solve and giving them the space, support, time, and coaching to figure out uh, the solutions that they'd like to try. And when I say solutions, I use that usually. Usually you can only try things and you know go from there. Uh, and then the other thing that we like to do is bring ideas to the forefront that I think sometimes get neglected uh, in the education space, but ultimately impact students the most. So sustainability, which we've had a lot of chats on, um, civic engagement would be another one, um, financial literacy, health, uh, all these kind of issues that you know, really impact students' quality of life, but we don't necessarily, aren't necessarily at the forefront of the agenda always. So we usually ask the question, how do you define learning? But I want to go a different way here. I want to, because you brought up the word social entrepreneurship or the two words, perhaps we can go into what entrepreneurship is. We tend to think of it as startups, we tend to think as profit-making, but social entrepreneurship is something different. What is your view and sense of social entrepreneurship? Sure. So, I mean, where to start on this one? Uh, I'm hoping we are already on our way towards the fifth industrial revolution. And in this uh, you know, iteration, uh, we hope that purpose is, is valued over profits. So now we're seeing more of this movement where people, uh, companies, governments, um, we're really trying to say, okay, how can we use our system, what we already have in place to solve society's problems. And we need that, right? We, we need uh, work to be more meaningful and to address some of the things that we're doing. So for instance, in a company, uh, you know, imagine if companies think about how they reduce the waste or the type of packaging they use or are more mindful with their supply chains. This makes a tremendous impact um, in terms of um, in terms of the footprint that they they impart. So uh, of course, how do you get students to gain these skills? So when I think about something like social entrepreneurship, it's, it's really how do we use business principles to solve problems? Um, so, and we, and it's a good alternative because, and let's call this the social economy. So it's actually interesting. I was doing a little bit of research last week and in the UK and in, in Europe, the UK, we actually have numbers on the social economy. So for instance, in, in Europe, it's about 8% GDP. And this is great. This means, I mean, really think about it. Like 
we're generating wealth while at the same time being mindful of how we impact people and planet. So this, I think, is something really good. In the U.S., it's actually a bit harder to get those numbers because we still sort of have this nonprofit for first for-profit dichotomy. And it's hard because if you do something that's mission-driven, it generally goes into the nonprofit category but there's only a limited pool of funds. So, you know, you have people kind of competing over these grants. Uh, so for me, it makes sense to use more of um, a social model. So we'll just say social business, uh, because basically what you're doing is that mission driven approach of the, the nonprofit with the sustainable revenue stream of a for-profit. And I think when people can kind of nail that down, A, it enables them to do more work uh, towards what they want to do because they're not spending a ton of time searching for grants. Um, they can actually focus on, on the exact work they want to do because they're not having to adapt based on stipulations of a grant and so on. So in any case, to get started with a social business, you need social entrepreneurship. And it's basically using it's you know think about a startup but the biggest goal is that it's purpose-driven um and i think that's what is unique and so what do we mean by purpose-driven and let me let me just um uh, uh unwrap this question because if we're thinking about the sustainability of your quote-unquote typical business or the, the businesses that we're used to it profit is going to be revenue minus cost and of course you want to reduce costs and maximize revenue how does that work then when we are working with purpose? What do we mean by purpose and how can we still achieve sustainable revenue streams or sustainable businesses, that is ones that could stay afloat without all, all the, the helps of the grants and so forth, it, it, within this, this different model? What, what are some of the differences that we have and how can we shift from trying to make profit to being sustainable with purpose? Sure. So, um, I mean, there's a few ways that we can do this, right? And so when we talk about purpose-driven, um, it, it's really about the impact that your company is making. So thinking about how the work that you do impacts people and planet. Uh, and there is a lot of different ways to do this. So one component is just intentionality, right? So let's say you have a coffee shop. Uh, I don't know. Do you use all plastic products still? Um, do you, you know, or do you incentivize people to come in with their own cups or do you only have things where people can watch? So, I mean, it's, there's simple things that you can do with just being intentional with how you operate and, you know, the products you choose to use or sell and how you treat your employees, what you pay them and so on. Uh, you also have a lot of companies. Um, I don't know, how much does does the CEO make versus the employees? So there's a lot of ways of just being intentional about how we operate. And I think this is one way uh, to go about um social business or, or to, to turn more into a social business. Now, of course, um, this can, I think, segue sometimes into greenwashing and people saying they're doing things that they're not. Um, this, I hope, continues to evolve and in a good way where we're ensuring that, you know, companies are operating well. And the ones who claim to have a, 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 a social mission are, are actually living that mission. Um, the other thing that we can do is just tap into human ingenuity. You know, we talk about social innovation. So um, look at how many problems we need to solve. Like I, uh, I think the only um, profile I follow on Instagram, that's not like a friend or family member is it's called EcoMedi. And I love it because it's something people invented. So for instance, uh, you, and you have young people too, like 
okay, how do we create sustainable fashion and playing with the different types of materials that we use? Um, how do we construct in a better way? And, you know, you have students uh, designing different types of concrete. And, um, and so anyways, a lot of this, this type of ingenuity, uh, if it works, I mean, there's money there, I, you know, people are willing, are going to pay for those things. So, and that, that could be another way of looking about how we might be a social business. And when you asked about, you know, how do we spark that? I often think about the classroom and how many opportunities we have with STEM, with maker spaces to put the purpose behind it. You know, if I, I, I had actually recently visited this maker space and this kid did the egg drop and what they did was perfect. Like they were dropping it off the roof. That egg was not dropping. It was surrounded by balloons and all this stuff. And I was thinking, wow, this is, a, you know, a lot of tools. What if we ask them to do something, but with a purpose? Like, how do we reduce more waste? Um, how do we have better irrigation at our school? How do we build this in a way using only sustainable materials? And I think those are the questions where we can get kids to naturally kind of start thinking about how do we do this in a better way? that's more sustainable, that's better for people, that's better for planet. And in many ways, we're looking at different purposes within a school because when there's such high pressure for accountability, for standards, for tests and high stakes, anything, that in itself is a purpose. We, we tend to think that the student experience, the purpose is to meet some of these goals. Now we're talking about a different kind of purpose, one that's difficult to really quantify, difficult even to point out, maybe might be individual. How do we work with that tension? I mean... I, hopefully I'm answering this uh, correctly, but for me with schools, I, the purpose of school is to ensure what we were talking about in the beginning, right, is that students have a great experience where they're gaining the knowledge and skills that they need to be successful in the world. And I could air quote successful, if you will, because I think people do have different, different definitions of what that is. Um, but I think now when we talk about purpose, the sustainability and people piece is, is becoming more and more prominent because as students go to university, as they go into various professions, um, they want kids who, for instance, are climate literate. Um, they want kids who are smart and savvy and can figure out how to make work better. Um there is money in this. I mean, companies need to do this. Like we were just talking with the greenwashing. Um, they might just not know what they're doing yet. I feel like there's been a massive rise in uh, kind of accountability on how companies and governments operate. And they're having to, to, to pivot quickly. And maybe they don't have the skill set to do that. And so I think when we talk about purpose um, in, in part of it within schools, I don't think there should be attention. I think it's just a matter of schools recognizing like, this is what the world needs. How are we pivoting to ensure that our, our students are equipped in that way? And how are schools going to make that transition to figure out what the world needs? And, and of course, there's there's different worlds. There's the, the world you know of, of everybody in it, but it's also different worlds based on the individual. Everybody's got their own their own world. How can we work through as a schools individual success, individual needs for success? Sometimes it's latent, and sometimes we don't even know what success might mean later on. And how do we work with that in terms of some of the the, the success that that is tends to be part of the dominant narrative of you know going get a job making money being successful wearing a tie and and sometimes success might be being happy or not being depressed or getting up in the morning how, how do we work with all those different um, ways to look at success while at the same time still 
in, in this uh, situation of accountability that schools are in? So I think, number one, I think we need to, when we think about purpose and success, I think schools need to sit down and really define what that is. Uh, I think if we're gearing kids up to have meaningful work, uh, that actually tends to give people more purpose and joy. Uh, and I think we're seeing more and more data that shows that young people, especially, they want meaningful work. So okay to put on a tie, but I want to do something that impact, that's impactful and that matters. And that's great. I think that's a great trend and that's something that we should support. So first thing I think that school should do is just be in, intentional about where they're going, what success looks like, and if they're living that. Um, and we talk about living that. I mean, it's in how they operate. It's modeling these things. It's in the opportunities we provide for our students. Um, the second thing I think we need to do more with is just providing a bit more of a futures literacy uh, to our educators. Um, to me, it's always been a bit disturbing, like the conversations that are happening in Davos or at the World Economic Forum or the OECD. I mean, uh, so many organizations, they have these these reports on the future of education or what the world needs. And those those ideas are usually not necessarily reaching educators. And so for me, there's a big gap right now. So, for instance, with um, sustainability and green skills, we know all the data is there that this is uh, there's tremendous opportunity and growth in this in this world, like we will need these types of jobs and professions will need to evolve so that, you know, those green skills are incorporated so they can do those pieces. So why aren't we doing more as schools to help ensure students have those skills so they can take advantage of those jobs? And I'm not just talking about like, you know, people to inst install solar panels. Uh, from banking to, again, you know, sustainability directors to, I mean, we we need these roles filled. And so it's doing us a disservice, I think, uh, in the education space when we're not included in those conversations. So we need, I think, sort of a bridge. And I think this is where futures literacy can come into place because there's just more exposure to what's happening in the world. Um, and... I think the other thing, because um, when you talked about different world is, so I think having a general future is great, but I also think the other thing we need to think about is um, what are community and place-based opportunities that we have um, to connect students to, you know, we, I think people used to say global a lot. Um, how do we create those kind of global opportunities um, for students to engage in meaning where they live? And this opens up uh, the question that I was hoping uh, it would open up, which is specifically that middle layer, the teacher. And I'm only saying middle layer in the sense that we've got the students, we've got the, the people at the board level, at the strategy who might want to change schools. And of course, the ones who are also connecting those two worlds are, are the teachers. But oftentimes teachers right now with so many being burnt out, so many leaving the profession, so many really not having the mental, emotional, or any kind of space really to, to start to think about futures literacy, how are we going to navigate these um, tensions within the teachers and, and, and make sure that they do have the time and space to work with futures literacy? Well, I would almost counter that. I don't know if it's that they don't have the capacity of a futures literacy. I mean, speaking from my own personal experience, why did I leave the classroom? Because I had a futures literacy and I didn't believe what we were doing was helping the kids. I became a teacher to make a difference and to truly feel like I was doing something to support young people. And when that was taken away from me, um, I was I I was 
disgruntled. <laughs> you know, it's like, why am I teaching this, this topic? I know that it's outdated. And so I think right now, a lot of teachers are leaving the profession because they're not able to make that impact. I think we're being kind of forced to teach curriculum that in many cases we know is outdated. I think a lot of teachers are actually aware of quite a few of the realities, but I don't know if we're necessarily given enough power and trust uh, to design solutions for our for our students and for our schools so that we can, you know, be more agile with what's happening in the world right now. I mean, we're going through a lot of rapid changes. And, and on top of that, I mean, if you look at, and I'll use the U.S. as an example of this, but just the state of democracy right now in certain places, I, I mean, the world is going through a lot. Um, and then when they talk about mental health and depression, well, I mean, of course, people feel sad. We are going through a lot. Um, and I think when people don't feel like they have an opportunity to act, when they don't feel like they have the power to do something, you know, it tends it tends to make you um, disengage. And so I feel like with teachers, the problem is still that I think especially higher up, we're kind of stuck in this mentality of doing what we've always done, having the five-year plan, which I mean, honestly, at this point, why bother? You're probably going to need to be more agile. Um, and then I think teachers are kind of stuck doing whatever, you know, the administration would like, or I think it's a, quite a bit of it is out of their control or, you know, even, even speaking of being agile, if you're, if you're stuck, if your students are stuck with the same old assessments, uh, I again, I, I started teaching in Virginia. We have these standards of learning. These are really outdated. It's it's multiple choice usually. There's zero critical thought. So being told to do all these things when the reality is is that students get assessed on something that's archaic, I mean, it, it it's not very motivating. And I guess that that was what I was trying to get at, maybe in uh, in in different words, is, is specifically that that the curriculum just gets bigger and bigger. Let's take a, an example. Let's take history. Uh, they're not taking anything out of the history curriculum every year. They're probably adding a few pages about what happened. And so the space and time to teach some of the things, to be more agile, to work with your students, is diminished. The classes are getting bigger. The needs are are tremendous within the classroom. How can we support teachers who? clearly want to do what's best for the children, want to do what's best for the society, want to do what's best for the profession, but are finding resistance within um, the, the administration or whatever it might be. How, how can we support? What, what do you do, for instance, when you come in and, and work with uh, teachers and professional development in order to support them to get to these, uh, to these places? So you might not like this answer, but I just treat it like a game. I, I remember when I was teaching, I would tell my students like, all right, we're going to play the game. This is your test. This is we'll spend two days on this and the other days we're going to to learn. And and that meant doing the things that I think I thought they would believe in. So, for instance, even something like history. I keep finding it interesting because there's, you know, uh, history is getting uh, <laughs> a lot of attention right now. And for me, part of the purpose of teaching history is for critical thinking and communication, understanding patterns in history, um, learning systems thinking, these sorts of things. And so the more we bog down with kids have to know this, they have to know this, and not focusing on the skills, uh, the further we complicate things. Um, and so for me, if the purpose was skills, uh, you know, I would, I would, so basically what I would do is this, I think teachers need to under to go with their gut. And if you have a student child first mentality, 
it's okay. Like, I think it's, I think one thing we need to do is take some of the pressure off teachers. They know what the kids need to teach. There's a difference between, for me, passing the test and for really ensuring students are gaining those skills that they're really going to need in the future. So for instance, just again, social studies, let's talk about civic engagement. Um, This is something where, you know, we we might uh, address civics to an extent in the history class. But to me, uh, if students graduate and they don't vote or they don't see policy as a useful tool to shape the world or they're not engaging in issues or, you know, they don't even know what's happening in the world. Well, we, we didn't really teach them that skill, did, did we? And so I think that's what we need to do. And what I usually like to do is when I'm working with teachers is take a step back and focus on like, where do you want your students to go and what's the best way to get there? And that's it. So I don't, you know, and actually I I have run a couple of sessions on how do we give teachers more time? It was kind of like a hackathon thing. And it was just a space to say, what are we getting rid of? Um, So I think there's two ways to go about this. One, if you have a school where you can actually brainstorm what to get rid of, I think that's a very useful tool. Um, Two, I think if you're working with teachers and you want them to do, um, you know, some of these purpose-driven things with students, it's literally giving a space of just saying, what does this look like? Um, and just focus on the kids. How you, how can you get creative with what you're doing and, and make, make things happen? And, and teachers are able to do that. So in one of the books that you've uh, published, the Startup Teachers Playbook, w- what does that look like inside? What What is it that you're offering to teachers that will really help them navigate these spaces? Yeah, so we actually made this as applied as possible. It is filled with graphics, like filled with things you can download and and everything. So um, the so we divided into modules instead of chapters. And so, for instance, we have a module simply on project management, and it's to make it easy. It's a one page. Uh, it's called the Educator Canvas tool that you can download. I mean, it simply asks you all the guiding questions you might need to turn an idea into action. Um, It was modeled after the business model canvas, a tool that we saw a lot of in the startup world. Um, And what was so great about this document is that no one's telling you what to do. It just gives you that scaffolding. So you ask yourself the questions you need to think about so you can implement. There's been more and more talk about implementation these days. And for me, implementing an idea is probably the hardest part. Usually we love discussing ideas. We like exchanging them. You know, that's really energizing. But sitting down to get organized and figure out what you do with an idea and how you try something um, with it, this is the the hard part. So we tried to make a tool that helps you think through, you know, your goals with an idea, what it could look like, uh, how you work with people and so on so that you can be successful. Um, and then I would say within the canvas, that whole module is filled with little activities to make sure you're successful. So for instance, one box that I think um, people are surprised with is just managing expectations. Uh, So for instance, anything you do is going to cause a change for somebody else, whether that's students, colleagues, parents, and usually people don't like change. Um, So giving yourself the chance to think about how you engage others in your idea or your project and um, help them to understand that it's not like a change, you're just trying something. Um, it, it, It helps make the process a bit easier. So we, I mean, we just have a ton of just resources on project management. 
the third module is on transformational leadership. Um, I've taken a lot again from the, the corporate world. Um, transformational leadership is incredible because it actually gives you uh, tons of strategies and ideas on how to work better with people. And I've always found it amazing that as educators, you know, we're in an industry where it's all about relationships and working with people. So how come we actually usually don't undergo training and how to do a better job with that? And I mean, that includes like how we communicate pe with people, how we get people to engage in our ideas. And I mean, let's be real as teachers, we were literally thinking about that every day. Um, so this, this, this gives concrete strategies on engaging with others. Because I would also say too, that's the second part of project management. There's putting your ideas together, but if you can't get people to work with you on it or engage in your idea, your project is going to fail. So um, it's really important that we employ strategies so we do a better job with that. And then the final piece is on well-being uh, and just strategies to make sure we still feel good. Uh, innovating is hard. I think Education is an industry that comes with a lot of emotional baggage because our students are constantly telling us all kinds of fun little things. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's because it's a, a, a field based on relationships. I mean, the more you get to know your students, they're people. Right. And so, you know, you need to have the energy uh, to try new ideas and to do new things. So we provide ways to kind of gauge how you're feeling, why you might not be feeling motivated. And some of it's also at a staff level. I mean, we, we've we talked with administrators and like, oh, our teachers just don't want to do anything. And it's like, is that really true? Or did they used to want to do stuff, but they always get told no. And now they don't think change is possible anymore. And so I think we just have kind of a different way of looking at um, why people feel the way they do in education and different strategies to kind of get back on the right track. And I go back to this uh, question of purpose that we talked about earlier, because if I took the transcript and replaced the word teacher with the word learner, everything would be valid. Mindfulness, working with others, getting our ideas, um, influencing people, uh, you know, finding ways to, to, to be innovative, finding ways to go through and project manage. All of that creates culture within the classroom that builds the social entrepreneurship that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, I think in our book, we actually said we almost feel it would be better to call teachers learning designers um, because there's just such a, I don't know, image I feel like most people have with the word teacher. Uh, and I still people is, is still I mean, in the teaching profession has evolved a lot. And so when people still kind of use this word teacher as someone who just gets up and lectures, I'm like, that's not really fair. A lot of teachers don't do that anymore, you know, uh, so it might be time to kind of, I think, give it a new word. I mean, for me, if you if you have someone who's a learning designer, they're taking in all this into account. They're creating the experiences. They're looking out for well-being. Um, it's just a it's I think maybe it, it is time to have a word that better fits what we actually do as teachers today. And in many ways now, and, and I feel the same way about the word teacher and students. I mean, to me, it seems that if we're all going to be learners, we're all going to be learners, and some of us might be just a little bit more seasoned than others, and that might not even be in relation to age. I don't know how many times in my classroom I ask kids to help me out with technology or to help me with this or to help me with that. Uh, I, I hire them to be my social media people, and they teach me all about social media. Um, so it, it's it's interesting that what, what you're mentioning about all of these skills, because what you described it, that you provide in the book are, are really a lot of skills that we navigate through. 
all of the people within the school building, within the the the, the city, within within everywhere in the ecosystem, whatever that might look like, need these skills in order to work with ideas and and influence and 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 have other people join um, their their positions. Really, yeah, I I think that's the thing is you know people can't pass on what they don't have. So if you've never learned these skills, so most people who are teachers today, we probably did have a bit more of a traditional school background. Um, And so I think you need to be exposed to this way of doing things to be able to create those experiences as well. And so I think that's the reason for me, uh, focusing on teacher training and professional learning is so key because it's refreshing. And we get told that from teachers, it's refreshing to come in to have the space where you're listened to and where you're allowed to talk about your ideas and you're allowed to try them. You know, it's something it's so, it seems so simple and basic um, that for me, sometimes it's almost shocking that this is considered like, you know, innovative. It's, it's not, it's simply giving people a space and time to tap into, you know, the 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 potential that they have the capacity that they have to to do great things and i think when we make that part of the norm um and part of that's the mindset of believing in ourselves understanding how to you know not just find problems but to turn those problems into opportunities understanding how to get started with um you know designing a project and working with others um it it just becomes more and more commonplace and then yes we would hope that segues into other areas as well. I know, for instance, we have this teacher hack workshop. I've done it with organizations because it's the same exact thing of just empowering the people and giving a space and time for people within any organization or any institution to figure out what they want to do to make it better. And now you have a new book. Yes. That one's a bit different. That <laughs> that one is um, it's called Preventing Polarization: Fifty Strategies for Teaching Kids About Empathy, Politics, and Civic Responsibility. Um, and this one was simply sparked from returning from Switzerland to the U.S. and coming home to a very divided America. And um, just again, I think this goes a bit with the agility piece of figuring out like, okay, what can I do here? I, you know, I started my teaching career teaching civics in the US. And uh, clearly, whatever we were doing isn't very effective, because I'm hearing how adults <laughs> are engaging and speaking with one another. And this is not where we should be at. And so what are some of the things that we might find in the book? And what are some of the ways that this will create environments that do prevent polarization? Maybe some of the language that we use, maybe some of the ways we approach one another. What What are some of the strategies and, and ideas that come from in the book? Sure. So I should say first, so the, the first thing about this book is it's not just for civics teachers. I think ensuring that our students end up being engaged citizen requires skill building at all levels of the, you know, their student journey, if you will. Uh, So we wanted to do two things. Number one, uh, a lot of teachers are facilitating great conversations. I think the classroom should be a low stakes environment where kids get to practice exploring issues and communicating with one another, expressing themselves. And it's now a high stakes situation where I think a lot of teachers feel compelled to just avoid talking about things because they're getting pressure. Maybe that's from society, parents, administration, whatever, but they're getting pressure to just not talk 
talk about stuff. Um, so the first thing we wanted to do was say it's really critical that we talk about things. And if you're feeling pressure, for me, that's just a sign of how bad things have gotten. Um, the second thing is we really wanted to focus on social emotional learning and the skills we might need to effectively gauge, engage in conversation. Um, one thing that has been a bit, I don't want to say amusing, but I, I feel like naive is I've seen quite a few articles coming out on civic education and how to go about it. And, you know, it should be easy. You just teach the curriculum. And the thing is, is usually when students learn how their government functions, they're not necessarily happy about it. I mean, kids are not robots. So, for instance, in the U.S., I, I, kids tend to get upset when they learn about the Electoral College. They get upset about gerrymandering. They get really upset when they learn how much it costs to run for election and where politicians tend to get their money from. Um, and so... We need to understand the link between social emotional learning and civics, and we need to let students practice engaging in these issues um, at a at a younger age so that they're better equipped as adults to have um, more meaningful conversations. And this goes back to purpose, doesn't it? Because yes, they feel upset about gerrymandering and, and some of the political shenanigans that go around, but also the probably the best way to connect them socio-emotionally to politics is to have them think of purpose and include that, connect them with society so that they're not individualized and atomized. Yeah, I think that's one thing that has been, I think that's one thing that was the most shocking to me when I went to the U.S. is a lot of people were arguing, and I don't know if they had a purpose behind what they were arguing about. What's your goal? Because policy is what shapes our day-to-day -day lives. And so for it, students should understand that policy is one of your best instruments for making change happen. So if you care about sustainability, uh, if you care about equity, I mean, whatever it is you care about, policy tends to be what's in place to make true change happen. I mean, for instance, uh, I think there was a win in the last week or two with ocean conservation. I think we finally got 30% protected. That is the power of policy. And it might not be overnight, but these are the types of things where it makes a true impact. Um, if you want companies to really live by, you know, some of the like if we want to uphold them, uh, make them accountable for some of the uh, and some of what they say they're doing for sustainability, policy is the best way to ensure that. And so for me, we need to help students understand that policy is a pathway um, towards a better world, and that it's critical that they get engaged, that that they're that they're engaged, and that they use it. So I think part of the problem right now is there seems to be a disconnect between civics and reality, and I I wish we could do a bit more to bridge. Like, well, guys, we're talking about this stuff because we want to shape our world. Like, if you want more people to have access to healthcare, um, if you don't think like the tax system is fair. I, you have to get involved. This is your best, most meaningful, not, I shouldn't say your best, but one of your most impactful pathways um, towards the changes that you seek. So what's next on your horizons? What, what are some of the things that are on your mind? Um, I think what's on my mind right now is, oh, so I guess three things. Um, we're working more with schools on this agility and education piece. So we're trying to make it more commonplace to provide um, teacher training and professional learning in which uh, teachers are getting to practice this very agile, innovative, you know, process that we say we want students to have. 
Um, so that's one thing that we're currently working on is just working with schools and districts to make that like a normal professional learning option. Um, another thing that we're working on is in, in terms of sustainability, you had mentioned, you know, nature on the school board before, um, but I think it's really critical that schools are a bit more agile in how they operate um, and how they do things so that A, uh, our school buildings themselves are part of the solution and not part of the problem. So, um, and then also ensuring that students gain the green skills they need um, to make this transition to a greener economy possible. Um, and then finally, uh, because the book came out, we've been doing a little bit more work with rethinking civic engagement. Uh, I think because I do care so much about sustainability and I want the kids to inherit a, a better world, I think it's really critical that we take a look at how democracy is doing right now um, and make sure that our students are prepared to use government in a way that works for them. And in so many ways, all of these things are linked. Certainly the government needs to make sure that it works for them so that they provide the space to have the green skills, which allows them to, I mean, it, it all connects in one big flow. It does. I think that's what's a bit hard in the education space is um, usually the focus tends to be a bit more on content or a certain thing. So it's like you have to label everything. So it's like, you know, we work on math and we do PBL, and, you know, and, it, and it's hard to say like, yeah, so with agility, like you can actually use a variety of processes to do this. So we have these startup tools, but actually you could also use uh, human centered design. Uh, a lot of teachers are familiar already with um, uh, action research or, you know, um, but there's definitely different ways for us to be more agile. And then sometimes when we talk about some of the issues, it's not necessarily that I chose them. It's just kind of looking at what the world needs from us right now. And for me, two of the, the most pressing issues that we have are um, ensuring, you know, policy works in our favor and is supporting our students so that they know how to um, ensure that policy is working in their favor. And of course, uh, sustainability. So to make sure that, you know, we're mitigating the damage that's being caused to our earth, because this is just going to be more problems for our young people down the road. Actually, I feel like a lot of people that are around our age, I mean, if you think about it, we've been given, what, like seven, eight years to undo three decades worth of, <laughs> or to do three decades worth of work. And it's a little stressful. So I feel like a lot of people that are, are our age are like, very aware of the state of the world right now and what we need to do to transition. And we literally have been given a ridiculous uh, time frame to do it. Um, and so I hope by not ignoring this, you know, we're doing what we can now, but our students are also equipped to uh, when we pass the baton. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, you can just go to our website, theeducatorslab.com. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.design. Also, Michelle and I are in an adventure with Charlotte and Andy Middleton to put a physical spokesperson for nature on the school board. You can find the website there on www.natureontheschoolboard.com. The Coconut Thinking website, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to your comments and speak to you soon. Bye-bye.